Welcome to Single Serving Cinema with Tim and Tay, a podcast that looks at one critical scene in a movie every other week. We explore how the scene is constructed, what the scene achieves, and what it can tell us about the movie as a whole. I'm Tim. And I'm Tay. What's up, movie fans? Another Cronenberg movie on deck today. Another gore fest. Yeah, yeah. Or I guess I shouldn't say another gore fest, because <laughs> the last one we literally made a point of saying not a gore fest. Not a gore fest. But... We're going to some early Cronenberg today. Uh, based on your vote, we're talking about The Fly, and uh, I'm really excited to do this one. Yeah, this is a fun thing to do. I think we get to return to Cronenberg, do a full month, sort of celebrate Canada and this very important filmmaker. I think just to start it off and to really get in the mindset of the effects and the gore in this, I mean, we did the thing last season. We're doing The Fly now. If you had to pick a third for this sort of echelon of special effects, what comes to mind? Ooh, um, you know, I thought about the thing a lot when I was doing my notes for this. Mm -hmm. uh, just kind of the scene we chose to do versus what we kind of talked about in the thing. Yeah. Um, I drew a lot of parallels, but I didn't come to think of a third. I was thinking um, like Dead Alive or An American Werewolf in London, maybe, for this type of like effects in this period. Okay. I, You know, Evil Dead yeah. would be maybe my pick. Mm -hmm. uh, just pra all practical effects, yeah. you know, the the really awesome camera movement uh, editing mm -hmm. yeah all brings to mind this kind of low budget really exciting youthful filmmaking that was happening in like the late 70s early 80s i guess now we're at the mid 80s when we reached the fly mm -hmm. in 1986 and that's that actually what you just said really made it occur to me is that so many of these um effects-driven horror movies that are a little bit smaller or early in a filmmaker's career. They're charming because you can tell they're kind of scrappy. That's especially true of, like, Evil Dead with Sam Raimi. Um, the Thing and John Carpenter, to an extent, I'd say. Dead Alive and Peter Jackson, definitely. Cronenberg, I just realized, like, this is... Is this his second movie? Or, or no, no, it's not his second movie, sorry. Um, the Fly is later on in, in his things, but I'd say it's maybe his first in this era and it doesn't have that scrappy feeling. It's very sort of locked in and it's very polished. And I know, you know, we talked about shivers last week and uh, you've got uh, brood and rabid and maybe another prior to what I would say the flies era of Cronenberg and even those, like, they, they have uh, their... Videodrome. Videodrome. Oh, and scanners okay. would yeah. be the two big ones yeah. probably before The Fly. Yeah. But, they, uh, you know, uh, Scanners was 81 and Videodrome was 83, so there's still three years to go mm -hmm. until The Fly. I would put Scanners and Videodrome sort of in this era, and then you have all those more indie ones beforehand, and none of them really have that fun charm to them, like these other horror movies that we talked about. He always had sort of like a serious bend, I think, to what he was discussing and what he was um showing and and i don't think that's a bad thing but to if you're going to overlap something like evil dead and the fly the the tones are just entirely different yes uh i would say that the fly still has that sense of youthful exuberance and playfulness with things like gore mm -hmm. and body effects and just the practicality of shooting that way is very energetic and youthful, mm -hmm. right? Like you think of like a young Cronenberg still shooting this kind of movie, but comparatively to his other work and comparatively to his contemporaries at the time, I think the fly has a lot more sentimental value mm -hmm. in terms of 
emotional impact from character development and just the acting performances overall are less cartoony and more real and grounded and i think that's what makes the fly uh kind of what it is in terms of it being like a chart topper as far as all these horror lists go Mm -hmm. and it just being like a noteworthy horror movie like i remember my dad who's not in the horror at all kind of telling me about this when i was like very young and i was kind of like that and that is a big horror movie a Mm. guy turns into a fly yeah okay yeah no i think there's a lot about it that and this isn't a knock against it is pretty conventional when compared to other things especially i'd say videodrome and scanners were more experimental in how they told a story and i mean videodrome especially like what it was talking about that was a real mind bender you're right the fly comes off as a much more straightforward tragic loss romantic love story and it has sort of an almost like um uh not not mythical but like like an operatic tenor to it right like you're watching a play and you're like you go and you're like plays are comedies or they're tragedies you go in knowing this is a tragedy right it's just going to go wrong yes. small yeah. cast of characters very clearly defined characters um, really small cast which i like so i think i think that's all true and i mean before we go any further let's just walk through how simple this setup is The fly uh, concerns an attempt to change the nature of transportation, which results in a horrible accident for ambitious scientist Seth Brundle. Uh, Starring Jeff Goldblum, Gina Davis, and directed by David Cronenberg, The Fly was released August 15th, 1986. It's available to stream on Disney Plus and maybe also Crave uh, for Canadian listeners. I gotta tell you that this is maybe the third time since I've had Disney Plus that I've watched The Fly. And loading up Disney Plus to watch this movie always has a bit of a disconnect in my head. <laughs> yep. I think I mentioned that a few podcasts yeah. ago. It's just kind of weird <laughs> to see. Like, I think Speed was also on yeah. Disney Plus. Yeah. It's just kind of... It, it's This one's obviously further from what I know to be Disney than even Speed is. But um, it, it's still bizarre to see Disney Plus beside something like this. It, this is one where you'd be worried, I think, as a parent that you're like, oh, my kid, you know, they know how to work the remote. They can find Moana and turn it on. <laughs> and then they do a little exploring and they, they watch the fly instead. Uh, that that would definitely create some foundational core memories, I think. For, for those who do collect Blu-rays out there, though, uh, this is a very worthwhile Blu-ray mm-hmm. purchase. It's loaded with special features, behind the scenes, uh, commentaries, interviews. Yeah. Uh, there's just a lot of focus on the gore effects, which is... Uh, going to help us a lot in our discussion today and i credit the blu-ray a lot for kind of Mm -hmm. having the amount of content that it did but i think that kind of goes hand in hand and i'm going to bring it back full circle to our summary here because i think this movie was actually set up quite well for success yeah if that makes sense we talked we already talked about the more basic storyline in terms of less experimental Mm -hmm. a bit more conventional more romantically bent Mm -hmm. but also like small box office budget with big goals of being a box office success um the release date kind of suggests that they yeah. were banking on this being a summer movie mm-hmm. and i think it it must have landed pretty well being a 60 million dollar return um yeah i mean that that's a great return and i'll take a peek and see august 1986 you've got aliens friday the 13th part six <laughs> jason lives uh, Top Gun, Karate Kid Part Two. I mean, there's a lot of money and there's a lot of hits in theaters That's a right lot then. Of money. Um, Oddly, the three horror movies in August there. Yeah, The Fly. Oh, The Fly was number five. It just I had to expand the chart. Um, 
but no, I mean, that's that's a busy time of year. That's a busy season. You've got um, Ferris Bueller is still in theaters after coming out July 11th. <laughs> so it's just got a long tail on I'm it. I'm sure the competition was steep between these two, those two movies. Stand By Me. I mean, wow. yeah, yeah, Texas Chainsaw Massacre too. I mean, there's a ton of stuff in theaters, and I think it did very well. And I think you're right that this was probably easier to market than something like Videodrome or Scanners to to a mass audience. I think Scanners and Videodrome very easy, like in Fangoria magazine and other sort of like yeah. nerdy film horror sci-fi magazine and subcultures to say, oh, there's a movie about guys who blow up each other's heads with their minds. And everyone's like, okay, I'm going to go see that, right? Like, that's that's yeah. my jam. And, like, Videodrome, I think you get some more critical acclaim, right? Because it's highly thematic. There's a lot being said about the control of media and its effect on people and violence. It's quite philosophical, yeah. though, and dense. It's very in heavy. Of what it expects you to kind of get through yeah. as an audience member. That Like, Videodrome is, is a dense watch, and I love that movie. Mm-hmm. Probably, it might be my favorite Cronenberg movie, but... Okay. Uh, it's not like the fly. Yeah. The fly is meant to be understood at a very ge- at a very generalized level, mm-hmm. and these characters are likable, and you want well the two main characters mm-hmm. are likable, and you want them to kind of succeed. And yet, you mentioned already that you kind of walk into this knowing it's a tragic movie. Yeah, the score suggests it from very early on. I think we can touch on Howard Shore's score again later, but the score kind of is hinting at a tragedy almost the entire film from the opening credits onward by the way we should do our tagline yeah, yeah. uh yeah no so our tagline it's a great one i mean they had a couple different options this was the best one and and i think you you can see it on most posters if you google the flies poster it's be afraid be very afraid i mean, that that's fantastic right like you, yep. know, you you need nothing more and uh lines up with uh, davis's delivery of the same line uh in the movie itself um yep. Yeah, no, but all that said, I do think you're right that I think I think Cronenberg's career leading up to this movie really built the the engine for it, right? Because you've got scanners on the effects side, you've got Videodrome becoming more complex and more of a more of a thinker, and then the fly is also like, more science yeah, based. The yeah, the fly is like let's tell a straightforward story and make it powerful, and it will be backed up by Cronenberg's experience and expertise in directing these sort of effects and you're going to see something you've never seen before yeah and and we should note that the fly is based on like the 1958 film the fly uh loosely very which is just a very a classic 50s monster film Mm -hmm. um but some of like some of what i was looking at especially relating to the discussion we're having right now when looking at the movie was just how much this actually kind of fits the classic monster movie mold in terms of like the actual arc of the story and the payoffs and setup or setups and payoffs, sorry, Mm -hmm. of the script kind of operate very generically as a classic monster movie. And you even, I think you mentioned it about the ending, which is a scene we're going to discuss today Mm -hmm. um, that it, it kind of has that feeling right away when you, when Stannis walks into the, uh, to the lab at the end. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, it does. It has a, a sort of conventional, um, setup, like almost like a universal monster movie, you know, like what that's going back to like the Wolfman and, uh, and Frankenstein and, and things like that. I think it very much fits in there where it's just, 
it's about a loss of a person someone loves the monster can they find a way to save them can they find a way to be with them uh you have a third party representing the audience's uh disgust and fear or your local you know the townspeople with pitchforks that kind of stuff right exactly um, so i think i think yeah this movie is set up to be simple and understandable to shock you with its effects but honestly when i think of this movie and when i recommend this movie to people who i think you know won't won't be made nauseous by the effects i i tell them first and foremost it's a tragic love story it's two beautiful people uh we got jeff Coldblum yes. and gina davis um very very primes. early in the career yeah like physically in their primes no doubt um uh, very convincingly um falling for one another and uh and losing one another and uh, i think it's a very powerful story for that to the extent that i often think of that first before i think about some of the effects that we're going to talk about uh in the scene today uh i mean yeah so oh go ahead like just the script like i said is pretty standard in terms of you know the beats and the characters that they've created to kind of get from point a to point b Mm -hmm. but the visuals and the intangibles of every scene are what make this movie kind of stand out Mm -hmm. because it is it is the connection between the two actors that makes this more than just your traditional classic predictable love story Mm -hmm. uh there's actual emotion and you you really don't want to see them kind of have this breakdown between gina davis and jeff goldblum's characters you you want to see this succeed and i'm not someone who cheers for this and to happen in rome or like i'm not someone who cheers for romantic happy endings in films necessarily i like when they're portrayed in a more realistic way Mm -hmm. which doesn't necessarily mean negative or bad just more realistically Mm -hmm. and this feels this checks all those boxes right It, it 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 earns it at the end when you're feeling yeah. when you feel bad because you wanted there to be a way out right even though i think it very also effectively sets up that there is no way out this is your this is a downward slope and there is no there will be no solution um and i think that all starts like from the very beginning of this movie they start it in after like i think a great credit sequence you've got a stop motion title card and this great effect of like the crowd in this in this gala at the beginning with like some filters and effects thrown over it. So you just sort of, you can, your eye can recognize the quality of like people's bodies walking around. So you kind of know what you're looking at, but you have to wait until the filters go away uh, to see what it is right after that though. They start right in close-ups with Goldblum and Davis. So there is no, they don't bother showing you them meeting. There isn't a meet cute it, I think it kind of suggests right from the start, there's a connection here. They're both shown in close-up in, in reverses, and it, it shows you that there's something right there, and it shows you their fantastic faces. So you kind of get to and, fall in love with them as they get to know each other. And it really throws you right in the movie. Mm-hmm. It just starts with their dialogue. Mm-hmm. And like you said, the close-ups, is like it's very jarring. You're yeah. not used to seeing that as your opening shot. You're used to an establishing shot, perhaps. Usually you have to um, you have to nope. work up to it. You can't just force that intimacy. Even when I just speak on like the intimacy between an audience and a close up, right? Like especially yeah. remember, this is always intended for theaters. So just think about how big these faces are. You're sitting in the theater. You get the fly. You get some of the credits, and then it goes right to Jeff Goldblum's face and Gina Davis's face. You know, twenty five feet high, right? Um, and from what I remember, not even like a. A voiceover like an L cut it's 
this is just you just get their it cuts right to the close-ups yep. and you get their voices mm -hmm. and their faces all in one yeah and i think it also very well establishes that this isn't just about Goldblum and his descent or uh sorry uh Seth Brendel and his descent into being a monster or just about Davis and her having to suffer watching someone she love uh die slowly and right. painfully they are on even keel they're together right from the start because you could very easily shoot this with Brendel leaves his lab and you show the telepods in the background and you make people think what are those and then he goes to this gala and he's kind of bored and then he meets this beautiful reporter who's also interested in his story or vice versa. You could have her yep. leaving a meeting with Stathis and doing all her version of that stuff. But no, they start them right together. So you know they're, they are your main characters. I think it's very, very well set up. And I love... Oh, go ahead. Like, I don't want to, like, break down every piece of the character's development. Mm -hmm. But I really like how Veronica's very career-minded mm -hmm. right away. Her instant reaction isn't like, oh, this guy's really cute. I'm going to, like, mm -hmm. pursue this man it's like i need to pursue this story for my own sake yeah and she like rejects him like kind of being like no i need that tape actually and she like has this great moment where she's like no and yeah she walks out and she takes it and she and, like so right away like it's kind of like i know what you mean it's set up like oh like this is intimate this is two close-ups mm -hmm. between two characters we know are going to be close by the end of the movie but then it actually like removes you from that because there's that separation for a very small period of the script until he says his famous cheeseburger line. Yeah. Yeah, no. And then I, it's all back to normal. I, I do think they strike a good balance, though, because I think there's lots of opportunities where Davis's character, Veronica, would normally leave the situation, right? Like, she's talking to him. He's obviously weird at the gala. He offers her an espresso. He makes it very clear he doesn't have some bad espresso machine. He has the restaurant espresso machine with a little eagle on top. And then he manages to convince her to come back to his creepy apartment after like well, that's he, the weirdest part of the whole movie well yeah is he, the fact that she actually went back with well him. and that's i think what's being suggested is she's like she's got plenty of professional reasons to say no right and she still she still goes back because she's still i think a little interested in him i think he's still he's cute to her he's idiosyncratic so i think they walk a fine line where she's like there might be a story here but i also kind of like this guy or i'm interested in this guy i want to see what's up here she mm -hmm. has to drive him back to his lab. He gets carsick on the way there, which is a nice hint towards why he's doing the scientific work he's doing. Yeah. They go up into it's this. It's also good to, good at presenting his vulnerability, yeah. which is really important mm -hmm. for his character. And they go up into his creepy apartment, and he walks in and immediately starts playing piano. Listen, uh, maybe this is a bad idea. Oh, it's too late. You've already seen them. Can't let you leave here alive. Right. Yeah. Like there are all these reasons where you're like, this guy's weird. I'm, I'm out of here. Or like there's also there's no story here. Right. Like designer telephone booths, etc. Designer phone booths. Very cute. I think glosses over many opportunities to leave the situation until he transports her nylon and she really mm -hmm. gets it. And then you're but then you're right. She is like the most important thing here is the story. And like, you know, I'm a reporter. I'm going to take take my my tape and go. And you're right, it's not until later where they sort of reestablish the uh, the status quo between them. But I do think it's suggested that she has another reason to be there is because she kind of thinks this, 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 goofy, this goofy nerd is kind of cute, right? And I mean, it's Jeff Goldblum. He's like six foot nine and he's beautiful. So he I looks, don't, we don't disagree. 
There's no way he's actually that tall in real life, though, right? Like, he doesn't tower over actors normally, he? Does must he? be... Uh, let's see. Okay, thank you for meters. I don't read meters. This is a Canadian podcast. Get out of here with your meters. Yeah, uh, he's he's six he's six foot four. He's he's tall enough. Okay, he's um, very tall. Okay. Well, I mean, it helps. I'm pretty sure Davis is pretty tall too. So, okay, yeah, yeah. But uh, but anyway, I do think I like I love how they set this up and. I love that also there there was another point I wanted to make. She has all these reasons not to bother with him, but she sort of sticks around, I think, because he's potentially a story and she likes him too. And like I love that the first time she makes the move on him, the first time they sleep together, and it's in the wake of his failure. So there's not there's also not this aspect to her character that like when she knows he's going to be famous or rich, then she's interested in him. Is that his low point right. after he turns a baboon inside out that she's like, you're cute. And he's like, what? I don't, what are you talking about? And then everything goes his way. Pretty much until yeah. it doesn't. <laughs> until it doesn't. Well, until again, and like, I mean, maybe we can talk about the way that this movie represents men or, or presents men uh, in this, because it's in his fleeting moment of jealousy that he makes his, critical error right because he thinks that she's gone back to be with her, her ex status and he decides to go through the telepods uh without testing the the baboon and, and makes a critical error and right. he's, he's drunk on champagne you know well so i think there's a nice balance of foolishness and vulnerability happening at the same time mm-hmm. and uh, i already mentioned how at the beginning you see him kind of getting car sick and immediately showing his vulnerability to veronica in his, his discomfort mm-hmm. and a lot of this is to highlight seth's awkwardness and um anti-social behavior uh he's a, it's meant to show that he's been someone locked in a lab obsessed with his work for so long mm-hmm. and i think that makes this moment where he actually like because the romance does start very quickly and passionately mm-hmm. and then he has this moment of drunken stupor and excitement because he just had a break the biggest breakthrough of his of his career yeah and the woman that he thinks he's falling in love with he has like a spur of the moment kind of like oh she's cheating on me already yeah feeling which seems super childish and immature but if you think about how the character's been built to this point i think it does fit really really well with his reactionary or with his with the reaction which is he goes in the telepod and almost to to like build himself up mm-hmm. yeah and like this is also you you get a foil in stathis right the the really just the third character in this movie played by john getz um so stathis is from the first like a shockingly scummy person just the 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 liberties that he takes with essentially like he was a professor when ronnie was in school and now he runs this publishing house and he's her editor and he's constantly overstepping boundaries saying reprehensible stuff to her um i think it's uh i i think they really show you like here is a ostensibly horrible guy who is successful and you know clean and healthy and all these things and they show you Goldblum's character uh Brundle who is weird and vulnerable and has all these qualities that I think Davis's character is attracted to and then over the course of the movie 
turning into this monster basically applies all of Stathis's traits to Brundle. Um, you, you wrote in here, he becomes dominant, oppressive, overbearing, possessive. And it starts in that moment, right, where she leaves to go see him. Yeah, and I mean, there are some direct line references between the two. There's a moment in the movie where Stathis says, when all this is over, can I claim your body? Right, which he means just for sexual purposes. Again, just a truly wild thing to say to anybody, to think that that's... I, I, we don't have to... <laughs> I'm at a loss for words how to even uh, provide context for that. Um, but then, like, you know, literally by the end of the movie, Brundlefly is trying to claim Ronnie's body, right? For c- completely yep. different purposes. But so there, I think there, it's very clearly set up that, like, Stathis is a horrible man. And as Brundle becomes a monster, he becomes a version of the same horrible type of man. Yeah, and you know, we're going to touch on it when we get to the final scene, but just the way that Brundlefly kind of grabs Veronica's wrist is mm-hmm. like that that classic image of an overbearing abusive uh, of an overbearing abuser. Yeah. Yeah, possessive like he just sees them for what they can offer, for like trying to force a family together again in a very Cronenbergian way to express that sentiment. Um Yes. Uh, and, and, and things like that. I think we should also, when we're sort of just going over the themes here, I mean, there, one of the things I love about this movie, because we talked about how clear this plot is and things like that. I also think that there isn't one exact way to interpret. Um, like if you were going to write, you know, your film school essay about this, I think you can take it a bunch of different ways and you can find online criticism that takes it so many ways, whether the, whether the progression of Brundle into Brundlefly is about aging or about drug use or there are even people who, because it, because of the time it came out, was like it was about AIDS and sort of the loss of, of the body and the destruction of the body. Um, I think aging that, is the clearest one. Um, yeah, Cronenberg did reject the AIDS metaphor, even though he did, he did suggest that it was a more general metaphor for sickness in terminal illness yeah he said it was never meant to explicitly be an aids metaphor and that's fair um, i mean that, that's a, he, that's a very politically loaded thing to even to discuss on so i, I wouldn't be surprised yeah. if he never meant for that but at the time people would just be applying that framework to art well that's what he he in the same quote he kind of acknowledged that he said i get that based on the time period i made the movie and what was happening in the world that people are going to have that interpretation but that is not the only way that my movie should be interpreted. Mm. And I, I just, you know, he's a very, very smart guy. He understands his movies better than the public does for sure. So yeah. he, I think him saying that kind of reassures that this is not necessarily about that. I think you're right in saying that it's a much more general metaphor about aging, um, irreversible effects of bodily transformation, uh, and it it's honestly one of the most tragic forms of horror. Yeah, because it's that I, I mean, because it, it's the most applicable. We're all going to age. So horror movies that are about aging or use it as a metaphor for or use a monster transformation or or haunting or anything like that to discuss aging, I think will always be very palpable to us. And the aging one, I think, lines up most with most of the scenes. Right. You have like the. I would I would say is like the power scene where basically Davis wakes up, uh, Ronnie wakes up and and 
Goldblum is like discovering what his body can do, I think is a very sort of teenager sort of thing where, or, or even like child, yeah. right. Where like a child can like run around and do somersaults and jump off of stuff and things like that. There's this sense of discovery. The scene with the fingernails coming off and the stuff shooting out of his fingers, I think is overtly phallic and, uh, and a pubescent scene without getting into too many details, because some of my family members listen to this, I don't really want to break down exactly how that scene lines up. <laughs> but I think there's, I think that's a very thematically and visually rich scene if you're looking at the male pubescent experience. It's um, a very messy mirror. Yes. Yep. And he, he tries to clean up with toilet paper. Like, I think it's, I think it's one of the more um, obvious things that Cronenberg's doing in that scene. Uh, and then by the end, and I know I found a quote ex- at some point last time I was watching this movie where Cronenberg talks about like the fusion of Brundlefly and the machine, which we're going to talk about, is a lot like uh, it lined up directly with the idea that at the end of our lives were hooked up to heart monitors, blood pumps, things like right. that. Um, and then you have an instance of euthanasia. Um, so I think I yep. think that's uh, that that's the most direct metaphor. And as you said, it's so powerful because. It's something we all have to, no one, no one is, is free of that, you know? Yeah. It's why this movie has this tragic tone. Uh, and almost immediately after you kind of understand what's happening to Seth, mm-hmm. you know that it's inevitably going to kill him. Yeah. There is almost no plausible escape from this and he knows it and mm-hmm. she knows it. And yet the movie still has like 45 minutes to go. And I remember just kind of being blown away by that, Mm -hmm. how that's like the midway point of the film is understanding that it's a downward progression from here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was a great scene too. And and a potential choice for us today that we didn't bother with. But the first one where she comes back after a couple weeks and his ear falls off and he shows her how he eats then. And he's got this very tragic moment. Yeah, he's crying and he says he's scared. And I love that you get these different aspects of him where, like, that's sort of when he realizes how serious what's happening to him. And he's scared of it. And then a couple scenes later, he's got this sort of acceptance, right? Like, he's he's like, yeah. now I'm interested in what's happening to me. But, like, there's a, I mean, um, you know, the uh, denial acceptance anger etc like the uh, dabda thing for dealing with trauma or, or loss i think right. you could probably pretty easily chart across this just as people when they you know i'm assuming when you hit that first clear example that you're aging and that you you may have lost something that you're never going to get back with like an injury or or a change in your bodily health and and that immediate fear and then a little bit later on you know your grandparents they 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 know how to live their lives and they know how to find joy in it and things like that. I, I think I think that all of that's very palpable in this progression of uh, Brundle into Brundlefly. Yeah, there's the scene where she goes back to his apartment and he's crawling on the roof. Yeah, which is straight out of uh, classic monster movies, by mm-hmm. the way. That that moment because yeah. that's like the acceptance scene and he has like there's a bit a burst of comedy where he like lifts up his shirt he's like what's this i don't know that's maybe my favorite line reading by uh by by goldblum in the movie is where he's like oh look at this what's this i don't know he's he's come back around again he's curious and and uh and and he's he's finding some joy in the discovery of his new body or his changing body right but you know you think about what's going through his mind through this whole period and it's impossible to know because he's got like half 
half of a fly brain mm-hmm. at this point in this in the narrative but it just it gets to a point where you can't just be like dreading your demise anymore he's probably he, by this point he's probably already got a plan in place to try and you know get mm-hmm. better which is as like i don't know if we can get to our scene just yet but it's kind of where the ending scene has yeah. its crux yeah i think we're almost there there's one other sort of idea i wanted to touch on and that's the way that cronenberg uh presents technology in this i I love there's some there's some definitely talk about that there's some locked in like sort of aspects from the 80s in it i love that like they make it very clear that it's a voice activated computer right which is very funny now that we have all our voice activated stuff um i i love the concept which is rarely brought up in movies like this where technology is such a key plot device is that computers are stupid they only do what you tell them Right. Like they are not like it's not it is not the computer's failure that they set up in this. This is not some tragic accident. It is more hubris. It's impatience. It's all human based because, again, and he says it explicitly, like in dialogue that he didn't program the computer. Right. But I think it's Mm -hmm. even more present just in the way he expresses his frustration, not with the technology, but with himself. Yeah. Throughout the failures. Mm hmm. He failed to teach the computer properly, and I love that progression too, and I think a lot of this touches on some of the Cronenbergian themes we talked in the last episode and some things that he said about this. One of one of his one of my favorite quotes of his is he says, Since I see technology as being an extension of the human body, it's inevitable that it should come home to roost. Um, and I think that's represented in Crimes of the Future, it's definitely in here, Existence, a whole bunch of his movies. This idea that we created this tool this system of tools and it will eventually be a part of us Uh, obviously we see that at the end of this movie but i love that there are little hints of that as well like read the first time um ronnie and brundle have sex uh right afterwards he's got that computer chip embedded in his back just as like that's a a really sharp big chip eh? it's just a nod to the fact that like they have sex and then immediately he's changed it's almost like there's a creation Right. Like, yeah. I think it's a, just a little Cronenbergian joke, if nothing else. And then I love too the idea of the computer's er- interpretation of stake, which is another uh, sort of plot point where when he's trying to figure out how to transport bodies, it, he has to. Com- it's very poetic, I think. It's not very technical when he says he has to teach the computer to be whatever she says, the uh, the fascination with the flesh, the madness of yeah. the flesh, whatever. Um and I love that the computer, the idea of the computer interpreting stake, I think is very, very much something that Cronenberg's obsessed with, which is the, the gap in between ourselves and the tools that we create. Um, yeah. I, I want to be careful because I'm not talking about the art that we create. It's not just a matter of us and our creation because I think he, he considers technology and art to be very distinctly different things. So I think it's very much we create these tools to make our lives different and they change us, but there is this gap that we haven't crossed yet, but it crossed it in this movie and in crimes of the future and whole bunch of his movies. And I think, I think it's all, it's just a continued development of that core idea. He likes to discuss. Well, I'm not going to do like a full extensive recap of it, mm-hmm. but basically Cronenberg was taught at the university of Toronto by a man named Marshall McLuhan, who is a cultural theorist, uh, or was a cultural theorist, um, probably the most infamous Canada has ever had. And he, his key theories revolved around much of the same fascinations that Cronenberg had throughout his filmmaking career, um, including the attachment of 
technology in the human body, um, mm-hmm. which McLuhan expressively suggested would become an extension of the human body mm-hmm. um, as the more we become reliant upon it. And the clearest, most obvious metaphor is just how a phone is basically an extension of ourselves now. Mm-hmm. The way it's in our pockets, then it gets... It, we take it out of our pockets it becomes it's in our hand and it becomes part of our extension it's yeah. literally part of our limb at that point mm-hmm. right and uh so there's a lot of really like if you ever want to look up a really great cultural theorist just look up marshall McLuhan. you'll find a lot of connections to what you see in cronenberg's work uh but this was obviously in the 50s and 60s is far ahead of when cronenberg was even making his movies mm-hmm. it's very cool stuff to look at now in retrospect yeah absolutely if you've ever um, been looking for your phone and then you realized you were holding it in your left hand like that's that's what we're talking that's that's what that's he's right. talking about here right it's that kind of thing or the fact that like i can't remember people's birthdays or what i have to do tomorrow or what my schedule is next week uh, but it's all on my phone my little like extra brain you know yeah exactly so physically and and um you know in terms of our in terms of our our psyches and our our memory banks and things like that that's that's yeah. the clearest example and it's almost certainly uh almost a certainty that it's just going to happen more and more over time yeah society is going to keep pushing us to a point where we need to absorb more technology or you rely more upon technology to get through day-to-day life mm-hmm. and the results in cronenberg's movies are the tragic side of that yeah um i think in a more contemporary example you can look at things like black mirror Mm-hmm. Um, which I have not watched extensively, but I have seen several episodes, and I think it kind of carries on that fear mongering about what technology is going to do to us eventually someday. Yeah. But uh, with that, I think we can probably jump to the scene. We talked lots of Cronenberg Kron- last week, so let's uh, let's talk about some of these effects. Yeah. So our scene today is a rule breaker scene, yeah. um, Sorry, which everybody. we've been known to do from time to time (laughs) but um we are doing a final scene today um to the extent that the scene carries from an hour 23 into the film to an hour 33 which is the very end of the movie so we have a 10 minute scene here um and this is the final climactic scene where stathis arrives at seth's house or lab in hopes of rescuing veronica and he is confronted by brundlefly and there is a battle um, with Brundlefly trying to carry out his sinister plan to fuse himself and Veronica and their baby mm-hmm. into the third telepod. Yeah. This scene really kicks off with, I think, those classic monster movie vibes. You've got Stathis comes in. Uh, he's looking around. It's A lot of it is shot upwards towards him, so you can see the ceiling. And you've it's already been established a couple times that Brundlefly can walk on the walls and uh yeah the low angle is great for that tension yeah and uh he goes and he he you know he checks out the computer console and he sees that there's a plan to fuse two subjects into this third telepod which we saw way back in the second scene right his his sort of failed prototype from a different era i on that note i didn't know that the scene existed until actually today when i was looking at the deleted scenes but there was a precursor to that so that what might not have actually been in the final cut of the mm. script. Okay. Um, there was a moment in the original film, which they did shoot and it's there's props and makeup to, and I th- believe the scene was fully completed where Seth fuses a cat and the baboon that he had left. Oh. And there's a baboon cat 
which is all practical and yeah. puppeted. And uh, it, like, morphs together and is very violent, and it actually attacks him. Attacks oh, okay. him. Yeah. So um, yeah, that I can see actually that. was a scene that they took out, and instead they kind of have the computer deliver this information to Stathis so mm-hmm. that we know what's happening. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think I think that's functional. I think, again, just like with History of Violence, he picks his moments carefully. And yes. I mean, this this movie has a ton of body horror. So I'm not going to say he doesn't overdo it. But I think just by by example, the fact that like he had this other scene with this great cat baboon puppet and chose not to use it shows a certain degree of self-control, to be sure. Well, and just to go back on that real quick, I think the buildup of gore is pretty uh, generous throughout the movie. It's It's mm-hmm. not like jumping right into the gore effects from the get-go. This is a steady buildup from the moment he breaks the guy's wrist or mm-hmm. i guess from the first baboon yeah the incident going baboon. wrong so that's the first moment of gore but then the next the, the pe- first piece of horror horror is when he breaks the guy's wrist in the arm wrestling mm-hmm. and then it kind of goes downhill from his like in terms of bodily transformation from there but the gore is not like the, the extent of the film it's the latter half and then in the final scene it just goes haywire <laughs> yeah it goes all out but at the start of the scene, I think it's important to note that they very carefully present how Stathis assembles his rifle, right? And I think Cronenberg's very clear about that being this sort of destructive technology that man has. This is what Stathis is bringing to the table um, to to be able to take down Brundlefly. And Brundlefly has all these unnaturally acquired natural capabilities, Right. Um, I think the other thing that's being sort of juxtaposed is you have, yeah, the destructive technology, this rifle, and you have this constructive, creative technology that's the telepod, right? Um, Brundlefly wants to become more, and by the end of the scene, Stathis is much less. And that's because because of a few key vomit drops. Yeah, it's nicely established in an earlier, in two earlier moments that Brundlefly has the ability to break down his food with the uh, corrosive acidic enzyme. enzyme. Sorry, corrosive, not acidic. It may be acidic and corrosive. Yeah. Corrosive enzyme, <laughs> yeah. which is the white goo that he releases out of his mouth. Oh, that's disgusting. And uh, it's really effectively done in terms of makeup. Uh, mm-hmm. and on Jeff Goldblum's acting performance. Those aspects are really well handled. And uh, then there's a part where uh, Veronica films him doing it and then has to show the film to Stathis, who has this hilarious reaction to mm-hmm. it. He's like, oh, God. Oh, my God. My God. I love that edit. Oh, God. Because it, it, <laughs> it seamlessly goes from them filming the vomit drop yeah. to Stathis watching it. I think I think it's really good. But, that so, is a yeah, really we, good cut. We know what the vomit drop is, but we've never seen it on organic matter like this. And I love like this. I think this first chunk of the sequence is largely Goldblum in the full body sort of rubber suit. And he grabs like yeah. Stathis. He jumps down behind Stathis, knocks him over. Stathis points the, the rifle up at him and he very calmly just sort of moves the barrel out of the way, pulls him up and... Um, vomit drops on Stathis's hand his sort of uh, like balled up fist yeah Stath- he's just got Stathis by the wrist and his mm-hmm. hands all balled up and then he yeah. just you know 
the vomit drops it. and and uh, like as i see it the vomit drop head is a puppet right um yeah yeah so they they again just like we talked about in the thing right where you sort of have that one shot where kurt russell's hand is fake and they set it up beforehand and then the next shot back is when you have the little uh the thing pu- jump out of it um, exactly that sort of thing where it's a controlled frame uh and they use this puppet that they can just hurl this white milky frothy fluid through onto onto Stathis's hand and then you have the controlled shot of the hand melting which to my eye is a f- sped up shot of of like a uh, a melting rubber plastic prosthetic right the way I that it moves i don't actually know makes, for makes sure that it's sped up okay but the way it that it moves be. makes me it has that feel to it um that so, like they 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 sped it up and they basically in situ in real time they would have moved the hand very slowly and then when they speed it up it looks like it's shaking but i'm assuming that whatever the way that they achieved the effect of the melting was too slow to do in real time that's what it looks like so, to me i'm not sure all i can say is like they have the raw the raw video clip of them shooting that moment mm-hmm. on the blu-ray so it's Cron- you can hear cronenberg talking talking to yeah. um the actor and the whole the whole production is and cronenberg's clearly on one side um so he can only see the one angle like from the camera's perspective mm-hmm. and there, there's a pretty funny point because it they the take is at least a minute long of them mm-hmm. like pouring like there's, so there's like a, a tube in the in the hand prosthetic that yeah. they're pumping stuff through so that's oh, why i'm unsure if it's it? actually melting because yeah. The only thing that I, the only clue that I got is they walk in and they spray the hand prosthetic right before the take mm-hmm. with something, and then they were pumping liquid through it to make it look like it was actually coming apart. Oh, okay. um, and the liquid did look like it was flowing at natural speeds when mm-hmm. they were shooting it, but they could have easily done a close up where they sped all that up. Yeah, it was really funny because at the end of the take, Cronenberg's like, uh, "So I think it's, uh, I think it's kind of done." And um, <laughs> what's his name? The actor, what, uh, John Getz. John Getz is like, no, it's just all coming out the back here. <laughs> it's like, uh, it's all coming like towards his side of it. Yeah, yeah. Cause he's not actually, he wasn't actually that close to it, but he had to be somewhat close to the prosthetic to make it look like he was in the frame. Yeah. Yeah. The one, the one that I'm, the shot that I'm thinking of, it's just the hand in frame. Yeah. Right. Cause so there is the joint shot... shot of the three of them, but there's just the hand and it kind of has that Raiders of the Lost Ark, like shaky sped up melt. I agree. So, but like I said, the the way they had the liquid pouring out of it in the wider shot mm-hmm. makes me really question whether it was sped up. Yeah, I don't know. By the way, I, it was super well done. It's it's a gross effect. It's effective, yeah. Like it goes skin to flesh to bone, and then yeah. even better. I think this is the really smart choice because you could arguably say like Stathis has been incapacitated. I would say he's going into shock at this moment. And then mm-hmm. Brendelfly goes in for the goes in for the second one, and I think like it's long enough. Like it's it's there's enough time where like you see him going to the leg and then lining it up and then getting ready to regurgitate, and you're like, oh, I just saw this. Do I have to see it again? I think it's so much yeah. more effective because you know what's coming and because it doesn't happen immediately. <laughs> And it's the same technique that Cronenberg used, uh, and like m- countless filmmakers used, but same mm-hmm. thing he did in the history of violence scene that we discussed 
uh, two weeks ago, which is you have you have the real foot squirming away, like trying to get away in the mm-hmm. first shot. Yeah. Make one cutaway to Stathis's facial reaction. Then you mm-hmm. cut back, and it's the prosthetic leg yeah. in same pl- in the exact same frame. Yeah. And the uh, the corrosive goop yeah. burns through the leg, which is just a prosthetic in this frame, and. It works really well. Quick yeah, cutaway just, back to Stathis. Like, he's kind of pulling on his loafer as he's doing it. It's so gross. Yeah. And, and I mean, yeah, all that's just like, again, like the way that they set up something fake um, in in uh, in the thing as well. And then so yeah. Stathis yeah. is very much out of commission at this point, and Brundlefly is about to vomit drop on his face. Um, you're really worried that you're going to have to watch that happen. And then Ronnie begs him not to. Yeah. Um, and uh, that's when that's when Brundlefly then makes it clear what what he's going to do. He he says, you know, help me, help me become human. I think there's a and he, and he explains that he's going to get in one pod, Ronnie's going to get in the other, and then they'll join each other in the third pod. We'll be the ultimate family, a family of three joined together in one body, more human than I am alone. He says, you, me, and the baby together. And I think that's a big missed opportunity to say you, me, and the baby makes one instead of the <laughs> very well-known you, oh me, you, me, and the baby makes three. I think I think they really missed that, but maybe a little bit too corny for Cronenberg's tastes. Maybe. I, it feels uh, like something Brundle would say because Brundle's a fairly corny Yeah, because he's a nerdy guy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So there's two things I wanted to point out about this. Um, the first is that uh, obviously there's we already touched on the tension that Seth had towards mm-hmm. Stathis earlier in the film and I yeah. think that that really shines when he looks at him so hatefully when he mm-hmm. grabs his wrist the first time you can see just the hate kind of piercing through Jeff Goldblum's eyes in that moment I thought that that that's those are the kind of subtle moments where I realize holy smokes Jeff Goldblum deserves an Oscar for this movie because yeah, he's his acting got through his that eyes prosthetic, to work with. <laughs> yeah, like that. That was that's an incredible feeling to get. Like to know that he's um, resentful towards this person specifically, not just like to everybody. Yeah, it's not just like like oh, I have to neutralize this guy so I can do my experiment. Like he's enjoying the suffering. Yeah, he's, and I think that's really important to note about that moment because it's something that I know have noticed from the very first time I saw this movie and have never quite articulated Mm -hmm. and then the other part i wanted to bring up about this scene is that um kind of similar to how we talked about cronenberg coming in and rewriting a history of violence he had the same kind of approach with the fly because he wasn't the original director and when Mm -hmm. they did sign him on he came in and rewrote a bunch of things including uh, from what i read kind of rewrote the characters from the ground up and a big part of what he changed about the Brundlefly character is that he kept him articulate until the very end of the film, which yeah. was not in the original script. He was obviously supposed to become more monstrous more quickly mm-hmm. and wasn't going to be able to articulate all these things to Veronica in the final scene. And so I think this is a really good, like, obviously, in retrospect, I don't, like, we, we don't know what the other version would have been like, but I think this is a very smart decision on Cronenberg's part to kind of have this moment between what we have left of Seth Brundle and Veronica. Because, yeah. like we said, this is a tragic love story, and this is the last time he actually gets to say anything to her. Yeah, no, I think it's great that you get to hear that from him. Yes. And then, basically, it's her refusal 
to be a part of that that really turns him into the monster because she's he grabs her hand and she pushes against his face and just takes his jaw right off and there's a just a phenomenal shot with davis holding the jaw and screaming like she doesn't drop it right away it's very kind of scream queeny and and a little bit more b schlock and i love it and then that's basically the catalyst yeah for the whole thing after that you get this transformation sequence where his knees reverse the little sort of little fly arms push out of his uh, his torso and an entire head pushes through the head and the 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 crowning achievement for me is the the Seth Brundle eyes as the go new goopy. head pushes through they go goopy like runny eggs and they they melt away and the music goes huge and it's oh man it's just it's so much grosser than you can imagine the first time you could see it and you're like wait there's a head inside a head you're not even like it feels like the science kind of breaks down at that point but you're like whatever like this is this is the end game well so that like i think it all kind of fits together thematically like you can kind of understand that brundle hasn't been Mm -hmm. brundle in quite a while he's had he's been a fly with a shell around him for a Mm -hmm. bit and uh, you know, we haven't even shouted out the creature effects artist, uh, Chris Wallace, who literally won an Academy Award for these effects and yeah. probably all for this final scene. So it's incredible. Um, have to do that before we end this episode. Chris Wallace, or I think it's Chris Wallace. Yeah. Wallace. I'm not sure. Um, it's not Wallace. <laughs> um, but he he's coming off Gremlins, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and Return of the Jedi coming into mm. this, which is yep. a, an outstanding resume. Unfortunately, he went on to direct The Fly 2, which was apparently awful, but Oops. Um, we, we have to have to give this guy a shout-out. Um, well, I mean, that's why, like... the special effects in the scene yeah. are truly jaw-dropping or well, jaw-breaking-offing. He's the first credit, right? Like, right when the movie ends, right? Which it is goes, a really cool black, thing to see. And it's real nice, and, like, I was going to mention it later when we got to it, but, yeah, like, this is how you end a movie. We don't need another scene with with Ronnie and Stathis like recovering in the hospital or going to like a Seth Brundle gravestone or her having the baby or whatever. Like this is how you end a movie. The movie's over. It's over. So there was multiple alternate endings too. And they mm-hmm. all tested negatively. Yeah, they did. So this was the only one that this worked. one. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, uh, so, yeah, uh, so she, she, she pulls his jaw off. He turns into full fly and it's very it's cut very specifically and i think it's so effective where it just you see the legs moving which are clearly being puppeted from above the frame or you see the upper torso and there's some insert shots of his big sort of like fly pincers from time to yep. time it's only once or twice where you get like a three-quarter body shot but you really never see the whole thing at once cuz you couldn't there's no way they no. could have done that and made it look good. i think even the pincers are fully disconnected for like i don't yeah. think you even see the pincers on the full body at any mm-hmm. point from my yeah. memory but don't quote me on that mm-hmm. no i think i think it's so effective and then and then it's just kind of like you're watching it happen the the computer sequence is underway it tells you two minutes to go um it's not real time i did the first like the first rewatch i did for this episode i'm like they actually do this in two minutes it's not it's like four or five um yeah and uh, yeah, he throws Davis into telepod A. Then I, I love there's a like maybe one of my favorite puppeting shots is when the Brundlefly sort of like turns around so he can back into the telepod. You see his legs yeah. sort of like swivel and one goes past the other, and then he sort of tucks himself in. 
It's very human. Yeah. And then you have, uh, yeah, Stathis sort of gets his wits about him, um, wields the gun one-handed, and uh, and fire and uh, severs the cable that's connecting Davis's telepod to the network. Um, Brundlefly sees this happen, smashes through the window on his telepod, but just as he gets through and he steps one foot out of the telepod, the sequence initiates, and without a second telepod, it fuses brundlefly and the telepod and again the door this, of the telepod the that's door open yeah because like uh, you know the boundaries are no longer set etc etc it's a major malfunction and i love they they've four or five times now shown you what this computer process is right you know what it looks like when they're doing the teleportation etc etc we're so well versed in how this computer works and they're so Cronenberg's so diligent in the computer inserts where it's the full screen is just the screen of the computer, not even like the bezeling or the console itself. Yeah. And you see it say like fusion com- or like it does the, the thing where like the little genome markers come up, like the four, four character digits yeah. that are all like clicking in and the Howard Shore goes all out. big music stings and your end it's just the whole audience is like what's going to come out of that telepod right because it's like mm-hmm. and it's like sequence complete and everyone and then you get reaction shots from davis and from Getz. everyone involved in this presentation in this movie is just what's going to come out of that pod and I, I love how it's set up yeah because it obviously ends up being a futile useless non-horrifying depressing uh image of what's left of brundlefly mm-hmm. fused with the telepod door um yep. i will say for the record the way that the telepod door gets teleported off and kind of like falls the, yeah, after it's it. gone is really effective that's a great special effect right yeah. there it's a great edit um, between those two like yeah. whatever the plate is that has the brundlefly and part of the door on it Mm-hmm. And then when they when they cut and they let the other door fall, it, it it's really good. It's it's pretty seamless. We shouted out Ronnie Sanders last week, but uh, this is just amazing editing it throughout mm-hmm. this whole scene. But especially at the end when the sequence is initiating, and it's quick cuts, and you need a lot of information and you need a lot of tension uh, between Howard Shore's score and Ronnie Sanders' editing. Very 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 complex, good scene. Mm-hmm. Um, expertly crafted, expertly directed, and really well acted as well. Yeah, I mean, in terms of very, very well acted, whoever is doing the sound effects, who I don't have in front of me, um, the the sound the 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 sound effects that they make up for the fly's voice after mm-hmm. he's gone full Brundle fly, when he falls out of the third telepod and screams, there's a yeah. lot of emotion in that. I don't know if Goldblum was in the was in the the VO booth or how they how they process that and put together. It's very tragic. And then a very patient sequence of the Brundlefly pod creature dragging itself towards them. And, now, you know, we're is, all... Is that supposed to be scary? Or do we all... Because like, I don't I think, remember the first time I saw it. I think you're worried about it. I don't, know if you, I don't know if you think it's a threat anymore, but the fact that it's going directly towards them and you don't know why is enough. And it's yeah, gross. They so. show you... It has the plates coming out of its back. It's kind of hunchbacky. It's got the long tail, which has the cable in it, and it gets Just up there. So, that's such a great effect. That yeah. one sh- cutaway shot to that. Yeah. Um, 
and then it gets to gets to Ronnie and she 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 holds up the rifle and then she can't do it. And she holds up the rifle defensively and she yes. can't do it. And then the tragic the tragic turn, like the the iconic moment of this. And I think again the thing at the end where you're like this is more a love story than it is a monster movie, although it's it's a pretty close race is where yeah the he basically just asks her to put him out of his misery and it's yeah just grabs the gun and puts it towards his head yeah. and it's uh that is a tragic shot and again it's a puppet it, it's like a there, puppet. there's there's nothing there's no human being there there's not even a human being inside it there's a bunch of people off frame moving its little pincers and proboscis and and its eyes and it reads so sad. It reads so defeated and in pain. And it's it's such an achievement. Yeah. Um, we can't really praise the effects any more than we have. But I just, yeah. like, this is top, top tier. I'd say The Thing is the only movie I could definitely put above this in terms yeah. of its use of practical effects. Just because I think The Thing is number one all time. Mm-hmm. The Fly's got to be top ten, top five. Yeah. It, yeah. I, I'd say top three. For me, I, I'd put it right up there. Um, and I mean, to its credit, like it was able to do all this while telling a dramatic, compelling story where the thing is like, let's tell like a, a let's do a phenomenal horror movie. You're just going to see people die. Like it's not doing the same thing and, and no. no knock against one or the other. But I think it's it's incredibly impressive that Cronenberg did both in this. Which, I mean, got it that 60 million return. It was more applicable. It is the kind of thing that, like, my my parents, too, also knew about The Fly. And they're not horror people at all. So that, that goes to show you, right? Like, your dad's not going to tell you about The Thing when you're a no. kid. But he might tell you about The Fly because people saw it. I mean, and, and we talked about my it. My guess nobody, is, nobody like, Nobody saw even... The Thing and nobody liked it. <laughs> right. <laughs> my guess is that people just kind of were drawn into the hype around it at the time, right? It was probably, like, the phenomenon of mm-hmm. the late August or mid-August. Of yeah. 86 yeah i don't but know that for fact, definitely more of more guess. of a more of a wide appeal because if nothing else should be like well it's a love story it's not an action movie it's not watch this monster kill innocent bystanders and stuff like that yeah. there's so many things it could have been that it wasn't i'm so glad it is what it is um we're gonna really just start repeating ourselves when we talk about the effects anymore so i i mean i think i'm good to go to shout outs yeah i just the very ending like you've already touched on how it just cuts right to credits without having any unnecessary uh, conclusion or Mm -hmm. conclusory scene. I just think that's brilliant, and thank goodness that it didn't do anything to add on to the Mm -hmm. misery of the movie, because that's that's the way you leave your audience feeling something. Yep. You make them cut walk to, out, cut to that walk out with that name. hard hit, yeah, and give the give the effects artist first billing on the on the end credits, which is a real classy move. Yep. Um, so I think we'll go to our shout outs right now. I'm gonna go with I had a couple different ones. I'm gonna go with that baboon uh, and the fly. Um, great acting by that baboon. We I mean we I think I shouted out the dog in the thing, so this really lines up anyway. Um, yep, that's there's very a se- true. the sequence where. Brundle is alone. Ronnie has left to go deal with Stathis and he's drinking champagne and he's getting jealous. And they just, Cronenberg just keeps cutting back to this baboon that's sitting in the chair being annoyed by a fly. And it's really like, you know, baboons, like we can see a lot of human humanity in primates and, uh, and, and, uh, and monkeys and stuff like that. But like, I really feel his frustration with the fly that keeps landing on his face and it's just a nice little way for them to get the fly into that sequence without it just yep. being like, oh, it shows up right when he starts the telepod sequence. 
and I don't want to dive too deep into this because this is just a shout out, <laughs> but I don't know how they did insects insect effects back in like before it was all computer generated because I have no idea. It's always it always looks pretty good in these older movies, and I mm-hmm. find that you can always see CGI bugs yep. in new stuff. It, it's so clearly not a real bug. It must be very hard to animate, even though it's so small, to make it look like realistic animation. But I never buy animated like CGI mm-hmm. bugs in movies anymore. And this one, I'd love to know, like, do they are they putting like a sugar solution like on the the baboons like hair like in the spots where they want it to land? Like, I don't know how they do that. I don't know how many flies are involved, but I think it's an impressive little sequence, and I like that baboon too. Yeah, the the one shot of the of the window of the telepod where it kind of pans like pans across and then you see mm-hmm. the fly like stuck on the inside of the window that's yeah. obviously a fake fly yeah you can just stick them there but the one that they get to fly on and it's off not that baboon like yeah. how 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 much of an afternoon do you think you're spending there filming a baboon and being like we got to get more of the fly and then like my, the baboon's not frustrated at the fly and you're like we need that baboon to swat the fly my guess is that's well Cronen, knowing cronenberg he probably did sit there and shoot that with the baboon yeah. but in most could movies, I guess unit. that's your second unit doing yeah. that. Take the baboon, take the fly, and get out of here. Tell us what's I'd love, done. I'd love to be like some TV director, like director for hire, and you'd be like, you're you're sitting down, like you're having a drink at the bar, and you're like, you know, I uh, I filmed the baboon fly in the uh, in the fly, right? And nobody would care except us. Yeah. <laughs> what's your shout out, Tay? Uh, I I'm gonna shout out the Cronenberg cameo, which I just think is expertly selected on his part mm-hmm. um, i can't really praise cronenberg anymore than i do in these podcasts but yeah um, it's just such a funny cameo he plays the gynecologist in ronnie's dream nightmare scenario of having a larva come out of her um because she knows she's pregnant with seth's baby and uh, mm-hmm. just the fact that cronenberg is there and he's it's just impossible not to laugh knowing it's cronenberg because yeah he's delivering the baby or like the monstrous baby and it just yeah. fits everything that he stands for. Yeah, absolutely. And the I, fact that like he plays a gynecologist and then the next movie he did was Dead Ringers, Dead Ringers. about creepy twin gynecologist with yeah, Jeremy no, Irons who looks kind of like him. A bit, yeah. And I like like in that Scorsese quote that I brought up 2 weeks ago, he he makes some comment where he's like Cronenberg looks like a chiropractor. Like he does not <laughs> look like this horror king that he's that he's been known as. Yeah, the oh, way yeah, he noted. speaks is uh, he sound he talks like a doctor, like a medical. He's very clinical doctor, yeah, or like a, just or straightforward. Yep. Yeah, no, yeah, I I love that he put himself there. I think it was a good call. Um, yeah, uh, before we move on to recommendations, just a heads up for real this time. The next one we're doing is Arrival. We are in August. We're getting into an Alien month, uh, so keep an eye out for the vote. We'll have you vote on an Alien movie, uh, which we talked about a month ago when we got our we got our numbers a little a little mixed up. But yeah, we're doing Arrival, Potluck with James Stacy from the Grainado, Denny Villeneuve for number 30. Um, so keep an eye out for that. And uh, yeah, beyond that, our recommendations, I'm going to go with uh, um, Brandon Cronenberg's Antiviral. So this is David Cronenberg's son who start, who has slowly been making a name for himself, I'd say, in like independent Canadian movies. Um, patiently making a name for yeah, himself. Yeah, yeah, patiently. Slowly is unfair. Like uh, there's no need to rush any of this. Um, but Antiviral came out in 2012. It's a nice, unsettling, gross movie. I think it is both clearly in line with David Cronenberg's sensibilities, but also its own creation. I don't think he's 
copying his dad or aping him at all. Um, I think it's really, it's definitely worth a watch. It uses Caleb Landry Jones's inherent paleness very effectively. It's a very antiseptic movie. It's a very clinical and clean movie in a way that kind of wears your eyes out after, after half of it's done. Um, yeah, the only thing whiter than Caleb Landry Jones is the backgrounds of this movie. Yeah, yeah. there's just so many like white walls, hospital walls, stuff like that. But uh, if you're looking for a, a, a compelling and unsettling movie and you don't want to watch a David Cronenberg, then watch a Brandon Cronenberg and watch Antiviral. Yeah, it's a, that's a good recommendation, Tim. I love that movie. Um, mm-hmm. And I think he's a filmmaker to definitely watch. Really cool that he's David's son and... Uh, has not only been inspired by him, but has you know taken upon the skillful art of filmmaking. Yeah, to kind of follow his dad's footsteps. Um, Absolutely. What do you my got? recommendation is a. I just am going with another Canadian film this week. Um, it's Bruce McDonald's 1996 film Hardcore Logo. Um, the fun fact about it is it's the origin of the name Billy Talent, which the band mm-hmm. took. Um, but mm-hmm. this is a this is a small Canadian film about a band doing a uh, five town Canadian tour. Uh, mm-hmm. They're kind of like a punk rock band, I don't know, post hard like pre hardcore, and yeah. they it's like a compelling comedy with lots of pretty gnarly view viewpoints and perspectives, and it's pretty rough around the edges mm. but the way that this movie wraps up i will say i don't want to get into it any more than that is like almost traumatic it it will stick with you um this is a an intense watch and i have only gone back to it twice and i think it's a very very strong movie so um you know uh heads up before you go into it it's mm. it's going to make you feel something by the end and yeah. uh but it's a it's a really fun movie for most of it yeah yeah, no, I haven't seen this one, but you uh, you brought it up recently. We were hanging out, and uh, I've got it on the watch list, so I'm looking forward to checking it out. But uh, yeah, with that, that's uh, that's it for Cronenberg month. That's it for July. That's it for Canada month. I'm sure we'll. Uh, we'll I mean, we're doing Denny <laughs> next week, and who knows? Depending on what's in the uh, what's in the in the vote, uh, maybe you guys will vote in a Canadian filmmaker, did an alien movie, but we'll see. In the meantime, uh, if you if you want to review us on Apple Podcasts, we really appreciate it. Please spread the word, share us on Instagram, uh, posts and stories and things like that. Uh, let people know if you like the show. We'd very much appreciate it. Uh, but with that, we'll catch you in two weeks for our potluck and episode 30. You, me, and the baby makes one. <laughs> Bye, everyone.